You're listening to To Dine for the Podcast, the Shot Put Media production, presented by MasterCard. Start something priceless. What's better in life than a bottle of wine, great food, and an amazing conversation? My name is Kate Sullivan, and I am the host of To Dine For. I'm a journalist, a foodie, a traveler with an appetite for the stories of people who are hungry for more. Dreamers, visionaries, artists, those who hustle hard in the direction they love. I travel with them to their favorite restaurant to hear how they did it. This show is a toast to them and their American dream. To Dine For the Podcast is brought to you by Terlato Wine Group, Lavazza, and American National Insurance. To Dine For the Podcast is brought to you by Riazul Tequila, referred to as one of the best sipping tequilas on the market. It comes from the highlands of Jalisco, 7,200 feet above sea level. Riazul's agave has a higher sugar content, lending itself to a sweeter taste profile. If you are looking for a true sipping tequila with extraordinary depth after being aged two years in a cognac barrel, you'll have to try Riazul Tequila. Cheers, everyone. To Dine for the Podcast is brought to you by Lavazza. Four generations of the Lavazza family have been working to perfect the art of blending coffee since 1895 with a devotion to making coffee moments special. Signature blend Lavazza Classico with its intensely rich flavor and sweet aromatic notes is a celebration of the Italian way of life in every cup and is available any way you brew your coffee. To Dine for the Podcast is brought to you by American National, offering a broad suite of insurance solutions to protect what matters most to you. For 115 years, American National has remained committed to helping people and communities make a real difference in their lives. American National supports great local community organizations led by the kind of people you hear about on To Dine For, people who are inspired to make a difference and inspire others in return. American National's philosophy is helping where it's needed helps us all. For a description of the American National companies, the products they write, and the states in which they're licensed, visit AmericanNational.com slash dine. Welcome to To Dine For The Podcast, where we meet the world's most creative and innovative minds at their favorite restaurant. On today's episode is Will Gadera. In restaurants, we have this beautiful opportunity or perhaps even responsibility to create these magical worlds in a world that needs more magic. That is Will Gadera, the former owner of Make It Nice, the hospitality group with restaurants covering the entire spectrum from fine dining to fast casual, including the acclaimed 11 Madison Park, Nomad in New York, London, LA, and Las Vegas. Gadera led 11 Madison Park to its pinnacle, earning numerous industry accolades, including the top spot on the world's 50 best restaurants. Yes, as in the best restaurant in the world. He is also a co-founder of the Welcome Conference and the Independent Restaurant Coalition. Earlier this year, Will published his book, Unreasonable Hospitality, and his first television show, The Big Brunch, debuted on HBO Max. I can't wait for you to enjoy my conversation with Will Gadera. Hi, Will. How are you? Doing really well. How are you today? Excellent. Thanks so much for being on To Dine For The Podcast. Thanks for having me. 
I am so excited to dive into your career and your book, Unreasonable Hospitality, but I'm going to start this podcast the way I start all my podasts which is asking a, a very difficult question for someone like you. And that, and that is, if you could take me to one restaurant hmm. anywhere in the world that might begin to understand something about you, where would that be? Hmm. I would take you to Canlis Restaurant in Seattle, Washington. Are you familiar with Canlis? I know it's won many, many awards. Canlis is a third-generation fine-dining restaurant the current generation is two brothers, Mark and Brian. Brian has been one of my closest friends since college. And the spirit of that place, how they navigate the relationship between honoring their roots while at the same time refusing to grow complacent, mm. and the extent to which they prioritize hospitality above everything else makes it not only a place that is is culturally aligned with everything I believe in, but a place that I feel very personally connected to. And it's also just one of the most gorgeous restaurants with some of the best service and most delicious food, I believe, on the planet. And what do you think it is about their brand of hospitality that is different? It's the intention and the creativity they take to pursuing people. Hmm. And how does that manifest? It manifests in the same way that anything is manifested when you approach it with creativity and intention, right? It, it just results in a higher caliber of work. There, they don't reserve their best efforts only for what's on the plate, hmm. but also for the extent to which their articulation is others-centered. Hmm. Others-centered. I love that. And the way that they pursue the people on their team and always seek to not do what's easy or not do what will necessarily like yield the most profits, but to pursue doing what's right. Mm. One of the ways I articulate unreasonable hospitality or rather an ingredient that's necessary in the recipe is taking what you do seriously without taking yourself too seriously. They mm -hmm. embody that beautifully. Mm. I mean, you'll just have to go. To yeah. <laughs> Exactly. It's, it's, they call it an experience for a reason, right? I've got to go and experience it. Well, first of all, thank you for sharing that. I love to hear the, the variety and diversity of answers because, you know, it's never just about the food. Sometimes it's about the food, but it's, it's never just about the food. As you articulated talking about this restaurant in mm. Washington, it is about something else, right? Whether it makes us feel at home, whether it feels a, a showcase of great hospitality or service, it's always the beginning of a story. Yeah. You are from Sleepy Hollow, New York, and you were you've been working in restaurants since you were a teenager. So, at some point, you had to make a conscious decision, this is a path I want to pursue beyond, you know, as a career. When do you think you made that happen? Because I know you studied at Cornell and you studied hospitality at Cornell, but I'm wondering like was it in your teenage years, was it that first job, or was it as you were thinking about college? I have a to-do list that my dad had me write when I was 12 years old. And the first two things on that to-do list are to go to Cornell to study hospitality and to open my own restaurant in New York. At the age of 12? At the age of 12. It wow! Was, I mean, I grew up in the restaurant business and my dad was my hero. And he was, a, he was a restaurant tour? He was a restaurant tour. Ah, in Sleepy Hollow. 
in New York City. We lived in, New in York Westchester, City. but he'd commute into the city. And honestly, I don't think it would have mattered what he did for a living. I just wanted to be like him. I'm I'm lucky in in the relationship he and I have always shared where my dad, in addition to being my dad, has always been my best friend and my mm. greatest mentor. Mm. What was what was the name of your dad's restaurant in New York? He was the president of a company called Restaurant Associates. The company was founded by a guy named Joe Baum, who is celebrated for having created everything from Windows in the World to the Rainbow Room to the Four Seasons to everything in between. Like Joe Baum was kind of the, I think, the father of like the first great and truly American restaurants. Mm. You know, for a long time, like the great restaurants in New York, which at that time were the great restaurants in America, were all la something and la something. And <laughs> right. he was the first one to come in and make, like, to show that excellence did not need to be imported from France, that excellence could be homegrown mm. in America. Mm. And it was actually at a dinner at one of those restaurants, the Four Seasons, although it was no longer owned by Restaurant Associates, but it sold years ago to the two partners that worked there with my dad for my 12th birthday, that I was just enchanted. I was enchanted by the world that they created, how in sitting across the table from my dad, the most important person in the world to me at the time, he's still basically that. I now I just have a wife and a couple of kids. So over the course of however many, two, three hours that we were there, the rest of the world ceased to exist. And all that was left was me across from the table mm. from him. The way I've articulated it since to everyone that's worked for me is that in restaurants, we have this beautiful opportunity or perhaps even responsibility to create these magical worlds in a world that needs more magic. Mm. Oh, gosh, I love that. And that was the first time I felt that, like truly, truly felt that was there in that room. And it's the only thing I wanted to do from that point forward, sincerely, without exception. And and even though it was definitely the where you were, the atmosphere, the ambiance, it was your dad and his love of it that brought it to life. Without that key ingredient, it would not have been, I don't think, right? You, you really credit your, your dad for, for starting that spark. Well, you, you certainly. It was my dad's love of restaurants that nudged me to fall in love with them as well. Him being in the restaurant business had no bearing on the way I felt that night. That night, it was there. I use this word a lot intention in creating the conditions for connection mm -hmm. that made me feel that way. I believe a great restaurant is one that creates those conditions where if you and I go to a restaurant, a great restaurant, we will be closer at the end of the meal than we were going into it. Mm. I believe in the sacredness of the table, that it's one of the few places left in the world where people can come together in a profound and beautiful way, more so than almost any other place. Mm. I think a great restaurant understands the sacredness of the table mm -hmm. and understands that the food and the service and the design, they're simply ingredients in the recipe of human connection, that that's mm. what we're here to do. We're here to make people feel seen, to make them feel welcome, to give them a genuine sense of belonging with us and with those that they chose to dine with. One of your first restaurants that you worked in is Spago. What was that experience and what did you do at that restaurant, what was your role there? <laughs> at Spago, I was half of a busboy. <laughs> <laughs> How can you be half of a busboy? Um, my dad ran Wolfgang Puck's company then. And 
he was very involved with my career coming up and he always wanted me to work at the best places such that I could, you know, build the strongest and most solid foundation possible. We grew up in New York, but he moved to California. He and my mom moved to California after my junior year of high school. Okay. But he could take that job. But I had been at the same school forever. And my senior year in high school, I was the president of the student body. And so I wasn't going to leave. That's just a cruel and unwarranted right. thing to do to a kid right. to come right. out of high school yes. for Awful. their senior year. So my godparents moved into our house and I stayed in my house and finished high school in New York. And then then my dad sold our house in New York and I, I moved out there with them. And my buddy and I drove across the country the day after high school graduation to go live with my parents in California that summer. And I really wanted to work at Spago, but like I, I wasn't good enough to work there. <laughs> Like, That's why the, you say half a busboy. You were there in theory, but you weren't actually working. No, 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 no. I was working. Mm-hmm. My buddy and I both became busboys there. But if everyone else had 10 tables in their station, the two of us together had 10 tables. Oh, okay. We would split the tips. We'd split the side work. We'd split the work. We'd mm-hmm. split the pay. We So to the restaurant, it was the same. Right. They I just get had it. one more body on the floor for the same price. Yeah. And we got to learn a bit more gradually than otherwise. I mean, something that only would have happened because my dad kind of set that up for me. Right. What a fortunate foray into restaurants you had at every step of the way. Right. And, and to be able to, who, who gets to do that, right. Who gets to, to, you know, be a bus boy, but, but be it in a situation. He was, he was putting you in situations in a way you couldn't fail because he was introducing you very gently into what was a difficult and tough business. And you were young. When you graduated from Cornell with all this business acumen, what was your job, your first job out of Cornell? After Cornell, I went to Spain for a while to basically work for free at this hotel school in the north of Spain in exchange for room and board. Mm-hmm. That was not a real job, obviously. That, that was more, A, I wanted to learn Spanish, and B, I just wanted some I knew that once I started working in restaurants in New York, I wouldn't look back for 20 years, which absolutely ended up being true. Mm-hmm. And so I just wanted like a crazy experience before that all happened. But it was great. I learned a lot. And then my first real job was as the manager of the front door at Tabla Restaurant, which was one of Danny Meyer's restaurants yes. with the, the chef Floyd Cardoz, who tragically we lost during COVID. Mm-hmm. Under my my boss... Uh, was the general manager, Randy Garuti, who ended up being the CEO of Shake Shack. I, I mean, I just had like an insanely educational first job. I loved that place. Danny Meyer, who really is the gold standard of hospitality. What did he teach you? And what did you glean from him you you now use today? I mean, the lessons I learned about hospitality and culture from Danny are the foundation of everything I've built myself. Mm-hmm. But if I had to pick a couple, I think Danny's innate understanding in the power of language, Hmm. that taking time to thoughtfully and succinctly articulate your non-negotiables and your core values such that they become almost an established shorthand that everyone on the team can rally around Hmm. has an asymmetrical and outsized impact on the culture and its ability to succeed. And anyone who knows Danny super well or Honestly, I think these are used in the culture at large without some even recognizing they came from Danny, but 
whether it's the charitable assumption or the swan or the salt shaker theory, like there's all these things that he created that became isms within the culture that helped us stay consistent in realizing his vision for what the restaurants wanted to be. So can you explain one of them? Like you mentioned the salt shaker theory. What What, what is that? The salt shaker theory is that the best way to ensure that people do what's right is through constant gentle pressure that every mm-hmm. time if the salt shaker is meant to be in the middle of the table, your role as a leader is every time it's even a couple inches off center, you just go and you nudge it back. Mm-hmm. You do that over and over and over again. That constant gentle pressure is one of the greatest ways to ensure consistency within an organization. We'll have more on this conversation in just a minute. But first, thank you to our sponsors. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. To Dine For the Podcast is brought to you by American National offering a broad suite of insurance solutions to protect what matters most to you. There's a funny thing about most insurance commercials, whether they feature lizards or birds or funny cartoon characters. It seems like they want you to think about anything but insurance. American National, on the other hand, has real local agents who get to know you, so they can help you reach better decisions about your insurance to make sure you're protecting what matters most to you. American National agents are part of your community. They're your neighbors. So whether it's solutions for your home, your small business, your farm, or your life, you can count on your local American national agent to make sure you get the discounts you deserve and the protection you need without paying for extras you don't. With American National, you get an ally, not just a web page. For a description of the American national companies, the products they write in the states in which they're licensed, visit AmericanNational.com slash dine. To Dine for the Podcast is brought to you by Riazul Tequila referred to as one of the best sipping tequilas on the market. It comes from the highlands of Jalisco, 7,200 feet above sea level. Riazul's agave has a higher sugar content, lending itself to a sweeter taste profile. If you are looking for a true sipping tequila with extraordinary depth after being aged two years in a cognac barrel, you'll have to try Riazul tequila. Cheers, everyone. Now back to our conversation. 11 Madison Park has to be one of the crown jewels of your entire career. Can you talk about your first year there? And did you ever think you would be there so long and have such an impact with it? I mean, in the beginning, I only took the job at 11 Madison Park under the agreement that I would be there for one year. And at the end of the year, I'd get to go run Shake Shack. That was the deal I made with Danny Meyer. I didn't want to be in fine dining at that point. Uh-huh. 
I had always loved fine dining. I mean, it was that meal at the Four Seasons, which was decidedly a fine dining meal that I completely fell in love with restaurants. It was over the years that followed, though, that I came to realize how restaurants became so much about the chef and the food that was being served that they started to forget about the power of hospitality. I found myself running around always trying to convince the chef I was working with that what I cared about mattered as much as what they cared about. Mm. And increasingly, it was driving me away from fine dining. Mm. When you say that what you cared about was, was perhaps competing with what they cared about, what was it? About the dining room, about the service, about the hospitality, about connection. That the food was just the thing that we were serving to people. It wasn't the entire experience. Mm. And I think at a lot of fine dining restaurants, and this is now changing, and I'm, I'm grateful for that. I think we should all feel grateful for it. But the service and the people that worked in the dining room were just kind of an annoying necessity because they needed some hands to deliver that food to the people they were serving. Mm. I believe that hospitality is is a craft that can be pursued, a muscle that can be strengthened. It's not an afterthought. In fact, it's the entire reason that I believe restaurants should exist. Mm. And the food is just one of the elements or one of the tools that we have to show people how much we care about them. Mm. And, and what you're describing too is, is a bit of a tension between the back of the house and the front of the house. And if you can get an entire team of people to realize that, that they're all on the same team and that they're all just as important, every person is just as important as the other in creating that experience, then you'll have greater success. Can you talk a little bit about your philosophy of that kind of pulling it together a team and that sort of l'esprit de corps that is necessary for that feeling of hospitality when you walk into a restaurant? Well, and like anything, it starts from the top, right? Like our great experiment worked because my chef and I decided that we were going to make decisions together and neither the kitchen nor the dining room would take center stage. We even got rid of the words front of house and back of house that mm. you weren't allowed to say those in our restaurant because mm. they just felt divisionary, unnecessarily yeah. dividing. Mm. It was the kitchen and the dining room. We all worked at one restaurant. We just happened to play different roles in it, but our, our collective goal was the same. And so listen, like you can't achieve anything of significance if the people at the top don't believe in it with every ounce of their being, right? I've seen other people try to create that culture, but if it's not authentic to your actual belief systems, it has an inability to take root. But mm. then beyond that, being very, very consistent about once you have your non-negotiables, holding people accountable to maintaining them, to, mm -hmm. to bringing them to life. Mm -hmm. If you can create an environment where, to the point of what I said about what Danny taught me, you articulate what your non-negotiables are, what your core values are, what your goals are, and you repeat them over and over and over again, and then give people the permission and the resources to do their role in helping the organization get closer to achieving them every single day. If you can celebrate everyone's individual role in the collective success, if you can remind people why or how it doesn't matter what their specific responsibility is, it's just a part of something much bigger than them, than any of us, right? Than even me at the top of the hierarchy. If you can convince people through your passion why they should also be passionate about it, there's this momentum that starts to build. And 
then you don't need to manage people to care. You simply need to give them the resources to help them succeed in achieving the thing they care so much about. When you hire someone, what is the number one thing you look for? Do I like them? Really? Likeability? Maybe the way you said it back makes me less inclined to like the answer. (laughs) Are they someone I want to spend time with? Okay. Yeah. And is it easier for you to hire or to fire? To find easy. When you think of the process of hiring or is it difficult? Some people find it very difficult to fire. I mean, Danny Meyer has even said for him, if he had to point out a weakness of of his his sense of hospitality is that he often gave people too many chances, right? He, he was willing to work with people. And as he evolved in the hospitality business, he realized that he had to work on that yeah. because people show you who they are. And if they don't, as you said, align with your core values, they've got to move on, right? So I'm just wondering for you as a manager and as also an evaluator of people who you want to have in your world-class restaurants, is the process of trying to find those people that fit, is that a process that's easier or is eliminating the people who don't fit in easier? Yeah, and I said to find easier because, okay, I'm going to answer this in two ways. Is it more enjoyable to hire than to fire? Yeah, of (laughs) course. course, Of course, Much more fun to hire people. Right. I think it's easier to fire. Yeah, but has that been a difficulty for you or are you someone who can quickly weed out who, who shouldn't be well, no, I mean, like, listen, it's whether or not you can quickly weed them out or not. It's anyone who's saying it's easier to know who to hire than it is to know who to fire, I think, is either confused or lying because you spend a lot more time with people come the moment where you might be firing them than you ever could have spent with them before you're hiring them, right? You know them better. Mm-hmm. If you're doing your job in the right way, you've set expectations, you've been consistent and holding them accountable to those expectations, you've given them ample opportunities to recover after making a mistake. And I believe that praise should be emotional and criticism should be unemotional. And Mm -hmm. if you are firing someone in the right way, two things should be true. One, they shouldn't be surprised when it Mm -hmm. happens. Mm -hmm. And two, you should give people additional chances to succeed because so often people in our industry talk about how like the people they work with, they're like my family. And it's almost a platitude at a certain point. I don't believe many people actually walk the walk there. But, and by the way, it's impossible to walk the walk there. Like, I don't care how close you are to the people you work with. They're not your family. But Mm -hmm. if you want to pretend that they're your family and like actually try to channel that into the way that you um, pursue them, if your kid like messes up, you don't just kick them out of the house, right? right? Like, Right there, that's why the people you work with will never be your family. But you can pursue them as if they are to a certain extent. And and for me, that requires giving people perhaps a chance more than most organizations would give them. But so long as no one's ever surprised when they're being fired, then it's not hard to do. You're not firing them. They effectively made the choice to leave by not delivering what was asked or expected. When you had the idea to start writing on reasonable hospitality, what was at the heart of it? You know, I always feel like every book starts with one great idea that if you could pass on to people, you would. And I'm wondering when you had the idea, what was at the heart of unreasonable hospitality? And there wasn't, it wasn't like one idea that started the whole thing. But I think as I worked on the book, the thing that I was perhaps most excited to communicate to the world was when you look across disciplines, And this is most certainly true in the restaurant business. 
The people that are most successful are relentless, willing to do whatever it takes. They are completely unreasonable in pursuit of the product they are serving, willing to work as hard as required in the most uncompromising way to make that product the most innovative, the most excellent, the most fully realized version of itself. Mm. This book is me saying not only to the people that do what I do for a living, but to anyone who does anything that involves serving other people. It's time that we make the choice to be just as unreasonable, just as relentless, just as willing to do whatever it takes, just as uncompromising, but not only in pursuit of the product, also in pursuit of how we make everyone feel Mm. along the way. The people we work with, the people we serve, all of them. I think that I mean, listen, the U.S. was a manufacturing economy for a very long time. Now it's a service economy, and dramatically so. More than three quarters of our GDP is driven by service-related industries. But I think coming out of COVID, where people didn't stop spending money, you look at Amazon's stock price as evidence of that during that that, that mm-hmm. time, right? People were collectively reminded of our universal need for human connection. Mm-hmm. You look at the digital transformation that's happening in the world and that's been supercharged recently with AI and chat GPT and all that stuff. Like the the value of a genuinely human touch is more important than ever before. You look at how the workplace has changed with remote work or hybrid work and how people are just not together anymore, which makes the time they share together so much more important than it ever was before. I believe that the companies that choose to put hospitality at the center of every decision, the companies that choose to be, again, as unreasonable in pursuit of people as they are in pursuit of product will Mm. be the ones that separate themselves from the pack. I wrote this book because I believe we're on the precipice of becoming a hospitality economy. And I've been lucky enough to learn a lot of lessons from a lot of people and a bunch of them on my own along the way that, well, if I actually embody the things that I wrote about and am hospitable, it'd be selfish not to share them with the world. I love that. I love that. You have done so many different things in the hospitality business, you know, to ideate a restaurant, to to bring it to life, to rally a team, to be on TV as you are now, <laughs> as to write a book, right? Like all of these things are, are, are flexing different muscles and employing different skills. I'm wondering of all that you do, what feels most will? Of all the different hats you wear and the work that you do, the meetings you're in, doing what makes you feel most yourself? Leading pre-meal for 30 minutes before we open the doors to the, to the public. Le- doing like a, a speech before the meal with the, with the uh, team. Yeah, pre-service. And why do you say that? That's just my happy place. That's where I'm there with the people that I've chosen to surround myself with, the people with whom I get to serve other people. But I mean, listen, like, I I think if you're in the restaurant business, a a great Danny Meyer quote is hospitality is a team sport. It doesn't matter how hospitable you are. It only matters how hospitable the team as a whole is because Mm -hmm. no one individual has the capacity to impact anywhere near enough of their guests to make that much of a difference. And in, in my role in a restaurant, my job is to serve the people serving other people. Premium, that 30 minutes with my team before we open the doors, I believe is the most important 30 minutes of the day. Mm. It's when the people I work with cease being a collection of individuals and come together as a team. It's when we can go over 
whatever, new dishes, new wines, the fact that health insurance enrollment ends next Thursday, but then (laughs) we can spend the majority of the time talking about why we do what we do, why the work matters, that we can share moments of inspiration, fill each other's gas tanks. I mean, pre-meal is the restaurant world's equivalent of the speech and Braveheart or the Al Pacino (laughs) locker room talk. The rally cry. Given Sunday. Yeah, right. Like pre-meal is the beating heart of a restaurant. Mm. Mm. And the approach that a leader takes to that meeting dictates whether the restaurant has the capacity to be good or great. Mm. What have you not done in hospitality that you'd like to do? And or what's next on the horizon for you? What what dream do you have percolating? What have I not done that I want to do? I mean, I, at the Nomads, I helped develop and design hotels and do all that stuff. But I was always more, I, my focus was the restaurant. The thing I, I mentioned before that in restaurants, we have the ability to create these magical worlds in a world that needs more magic. That. For a few hours, we can help people celebrate the greatest moments of their lives or conversely give them the grace to forget about their most difficult ones, that we can inspire people with our attention to detail or make the world a nicer place just by being really, really nice. Mm, Make it nice. I love you. (laughs) I love the idea of doing that with people, for people over the course of a few days. And I haven't done that yet. Mm. What's been the the greatest day you've ever had professionally? If you had to pinpoint one day. Oh, I can't. That's that's too hard. I mean What about what about when 11 Madison Park won best restaurant in the world? That was a big one. I would say we were in Australia when we won that award. The best day was a week later when we got home and got to celebrate with our team. Hmm. And what about the best day you've had personally in the past year? I just had a my second child, a baby boy, three Aww. weeks ago. Congratulations. That's amazing. Thank you. What's his name? His name is Sonny. Sonny uh, is his name. I love that. Uh, my first kid is a, is a girl. Her name, she's two years old now. Her name is Frankie. Frankie and Sonny. Well, that's a restaurant if I've ever heard it. I know. It's an Italian-American <laughs> restaurant. It just waiting to be open. It really is. We got to get the, uh, let's get the Instagram handle now. If you're listening to this and you steal that name, I will come <laughs> and get you. Um, okay. So having a second kid when your first one is two years old, I believe is a master class in ushering an organization through change. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> I think it's actually, it's it's been an amazing lesson in leadership for me because the person on the receiving end of that change, you can't reason with. It's pure emotion. <laughs> and, That's right. And you are changing the one thing that matters in their life, how much attention they get. I know. And so I've been having actually a ton of fun finding different ways to pursue her. I don't let my daughter watch a lot of TV in normal days, but mm-hmm. the last three weeks, we've just been- Here's the selling. iPad. <laughs> Oh, no, 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 not, but no, because it's meant to be time with me. Mm-hmm. And so um, at the end of the normal days, so like we eat dinner, you know, right now during this time at like six mm-hmm. with her. And then by 645, the two of us, she's in my arm and then my son is on the other side of me. So it's the three of us. And eventually my wife joins us have just been going through the Pixar catalog, a half a, <laughs> like half a movie at a time. So we start a movie one night, we finish it the next night. And the other night, it was the three of us watching the movie Inside Out. Mm-hmm. And I just felt 
Did you cry, yes. Will? I, I did not cry. <laughs> I didn't cry. Did you start crying? I guess I mean, it's okay. I am okay. a crier, by the way. I am a crier. I would happily, uh, I, would, I would own up to crying. Everybody cries in that movie. But I'll say, like, that was a moment of, of pure joy. Yeah. Oh. Oh, that's amazing. That is amazing. Well, our time is up, but I have enjoyed this conversation so much. And I honestly, your career is one that I admire, I've followed, and I look forward to following in the future to see, you know, where, where what other books you write and what other restaurants you open. Because, um, you know, I, I can see, obviously, Danny Meyer's fingerprints on your work and and how you have carved away all your own. So it's a pleasure to talk to you today and I wish you continued success. Yeah, that was it was a super fun conversation. You really you have to stay on your toes talking to you. I appreciate it. <laughs> well especially if you're a little sleep deprived, which I know you probably are. <laughs> you have a great day. Thanks, Will. Thanks for listening to To Dine For the Podcast. For more information on the show, the guests and the podcast, head to Dinefortv.com. You can find us on Instagram at to dine for TV and Facebook at to dine for with Kate Sullivan. Thanks to the sponsors of to dine for the podcast, American national Lavazza and Terlato wine group. Special thank you to producer and sound editor, John Golmer to the loyal followers of this program. Cheers. Stay hungry and stay inspired. I'll see you back at the table soon. 